Hi, everyone. Welcome to Killer Astrology. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm excited to have you back for the premiere of Season 3 on this Halloween night. Over the next few weeks and months, I'll be bringing you true crime stories both new and old and exploring some questions behind the cases using astrology. This season, I've lined up a number of popular and lesser-known stories, along with some listener requests. In all of the upcoming episodes, we'll learn more about what makes killers and criminals tick, and maybe solve some mysteries along the way. Before we get started, let's take a quick look into the current astrology. Today is Halloween, October 31st, 2021, and we're definitely still feeling yesterday's exact Sun-Saturn square. This square could be causing you some tension between having fun and needing to get to work on something that's required your attention maybe for a long time. This could mean that you're dealing with something from your past that still needs to be sorted out, whether it's a real circumstance in your environment or a habit that you need to break. Or maybe you're feeling an extra dose of self-consciousness that's causing some discomfort. It might be a drag, but take some time to make sure you're really working through whatever's coming up. With an exact trine between Jupiter and Mercury today, you might be able to direct some heightened brain power to whatever has arisen and make some much-needed progress. Best of luck. Now, on to our story. In today's episode, we're diving into the story of a family that was torn apart by greed and the ruthless search for status. At least that's how it seemed on the surface. But as we dive deeper into this case, we'll see that this story is about much more than money. This case blurs the lines between perpetrator and victim, which is one of the many reasons why this became one of the most high-profile murder trials of the early 90s. Even the O.J. Simpson trial, which happened simultaneously, couldn't draw spectators away from the unnatural horrors that took place at the scene of this crime and the complicated trial that ensued afterwards. It all began on August 20th of 1989, which was a typical, albeit unusually hot and humid Sunday in Southern California. Los Angeles was as it was, chaotic yet glamorous, but with some darkness lurking around many inner-city corners. Crime was expected in those areas of the city where poverty and other hardships were prevalent. But it wasn't expected in the elite suburban zip codes where the rich retreated from their bustling lives to homes that most Americans only saw in the movies. One of those homes, situated about halfway between the famous Hollywood sign and the Pacific Ocean, was the Beverly Hills mansion that Jose and Kitty Menendez shared with their two kids, Eric and Lyle. On Sunday, August 20th, that big, extravagant home became a true house of horrors. Late on the evening of Sunday, August 20th, a distraught Lyle Menendez calls into the Beverly Hills Police Department. Amidst loud screams and cries from his brother in the background, Lyle exclaims, Someone killed my mom and dad. Law enforcement immediately rushes to the North Elm Street home in response to a type of call that they rarely receive in their jurisdiction. Police footage from 2.56 a.m. on August 21st shows the gruesome sight that officers witness upon their arrival. Although the house is expansive, investigators don't have to move far onto the property to locate their victims. In the family room on the first floor, they find Jose and Kitty Menendez in a bloody scene. Both husband and wife have been shot multiple times all over their bodies with a 12-gauge shotgun. Jose's body is found on the couch where he had been laying with his wife eating ice cream when he was attacked. The shooter aimed first for his arms, rendering him unable to stand up to flee. This made him helpless against his attacker, whose bullet found the back of Jose's head and killed him on contact. 
Kitty's death was even more disturbing than her husband's, as she was shot five times in the arms, legs, and chest while trying to escape. Although her leg was broken from the force of one of the bullets, she tried to drag herself to safety while her attacker reloaded his weapons. Unfortunately, she couldn't get away in time, and she was shot four times in the head, killed ultimately by a bullet to the cheek. Although we're starting with the tragic end to this story, it actually started as a love story between a young couple with bold ambition. Jose Menendez was born in Havana, Cuba in the early 1940s to a well-off family with a solid social standing. He grew up comfortable financially, but he sought a life full of glamour and luxury, and he was determined to find that life in the United States. Jose was a man who always got what he wanted, whether it was earned or serendipitously handed to him, and he was lucky enough to leave Cuba at a young age just before Fidel Castro's takeover in 1959. Although he was just 16 years old when he left home, Jose possessed a virtually unmatched level of confidence and a persistence that would allow nothing to stand in the way of his goals. Not long after his arrival in the U.S., Jose enrolled in college at Southern Illinois University, where he met Mary, a.k.a. Kitty Louise Anderson. She was an aspiring actress, and Kitty had big dreams of her own. She was attracted to Jose's spirit, and the two college sweethearts didn't waste any time sealing the deal. They got married in 1964, before they'd even reached graduation. After they finished college, Jose and Kitty moved east. They started their lives together in New York City, then moved out to Princeton, New Jersey, where they raised their two sons, Lyle and Eric. Jose hustled in New York, making it in various industries and working his way up the business ranks, while Kitty stayed home and raised their boys. In Princeton, Eric and Lyle were growing up surrounded by wealth. It was a community ruled by old money. Their parents, having come from humbler means, had to work hard to fit in. In fact, fitting in with the wealthy may have been Jose's number one goal. He would do anything to keep himself rubbing shoulders with the elite, to be seen as one of them. And he wanted that for his family, too, which meant keeping his boys in high esteem with the community on all fronts, including physical appearance, keeping the right social company, intelligence, and doing well in athletics. But Eric and Lyle were, in many ways, average. They hung out with average kids, they got average grades, and even though they were coached to become world-class tennis players, they remained, for all intents and purposes, second-rate athletes. The idea of being average is a troublesome thought for most Americans. As members of an autonomous society, we like to believe that we have a leg up on our peers in one area or another. It makes us feel more prepared to survive in this competitive, eat-or-be-eaten world. But most of us know that we can't be the best in everything. It's just not possible. There's no time for that. Sometimes we accept that fact, and sometimes we don't. Those of us who can't accept this reality may choose to manipulate our environments to create the illusion that we're higher up in the social hierarchy than our accomplishments actually demonstrate. This was a common occurrence in the Menendez family. It would have been helpful in many ways if Jose and Kitty Menendez had taught their kids to appreciate their talents no matter what response they received, and to cultivate a sense of honesty and accountability. Instead, Jose and Kitty worked from the outside in eliminating all barriers in the environment that threaten their sons and their family's reputations. Here's an example. The Menendez family was still living in New Jersey in the mid-1980s when their oldest son, Lyle, reached college age. 
He was a successful enough tennis player throughout high school, but wasn't good enough for an athletic scholarship. He also didn't have a record of high enough achievement to gain him entry into a top-tier university, much to the chagrin of his father, who wouldn't take no for an answer. Instead of allowing his son to make other plans, Jose made a sizable donation of $50,000, which, believe it or not, is about $125,000 in today's economy. And just like that, Lyle was accepted to Princeton University. But he didn't make the most of his time there. He didn't demonstrate an appreciation for the favor he'd received, nor a desire to apply himself and do well. Instead, he plagiarized a paper and was suspended. His father approached the dean and tried hard to retract the suspension, but he was unsuccessful. Lyle never finished college at Princeton. He moved with his parents and his brother to Calabasas, California in 1987 after Jose was hired as an executive for a large production company in Hollywood. Eric, his brother, was still in high school at the time and made himself known in the neighborhood. His peers described him as ostentatious and as someone who wouldn't let anything stand in the way of him getting what he wanted, kind of like his father. Together, he and Lyle became well-known for getting into trouble. In the late 80s, the brothers started stealing things from their friends' homes, and that gradually escalated into true burglary. They built up to renting a moving truck and backing it up to the large Beverly Hills mansions in their communities, and then loading up the trucks with whatever they could fit inside. Although they were caught, they were never really penalized for this outside of probation. Their father approached each of the families, returned their belongings, and paid them a hefty sum for their silence. While many parents would have scolded their children for their bad behavior, it's reported that Jose's question was not, how could you do such a thing, but instead, how could you get caught? Some may say that it was obvious it would only be a matter of time before the Menendez brothers would find themselves in serious trouble. But few could have imagined how far their lack of sound moral judgment would actually take them. After many years of rule-breaking and rowdy behavior, the Menendez brothers would lose their lifeline, their only way out of trouble. Their parents were found dead, and they could no longer be bailed out of any sticky situations. When police arrived on the property the night that Jose and Kitty were shot, the brothers were there. Police called Lyle and Eric out of the house so they could secure the crime scene and search the property. The brothers waited outside while police carried out their business, finding the bodies of both Jose and Kitty, along with some confounding evidence. Among the numerous bullet wounds to their limbs and heads, both victims had been shot in the kneecaps. This evidence led law enforcement to inquire whether the Menendez couple had been killed by the mafia. But that theory was quickly scrapped since there was no evidence of mafia ties, and other signs started to emerge that hinted at something darker. The day after Jose and Kitty were found dead, a family friend stopped over to the Menendez estate to check in. Eric reportedly hopped into this family friend's car and immediately asked for legal help. This family friend, who happened to be a lawyer, noticed that Eric was almost emotionless, which is not really a common state for someone who had just found the bodies of his two parents in his own living room the day before. Then, some time passed, and Eric and Lyle received a $400,000 payout from their parents' life insurance company, which they spent immediately on cars and other high-ticket items. As it turned out, 
Eric and Lyle's father had discussed removing the brothers from his will due to embarrassment about their behavior and the reputations they'd earned for themselves. He didn't think they deserved the money, and how interesting that Jose would turn up murdered not long after making that decision. After the murders, the brothers really didn't do much to calm the suspicion that was growing around their involvement in their parents' deaths. In fact, it was Eric specifically who made multiple missteps following the murders. It turns out that he had actually written an intriguing screenplay about a boy killing his parents for money. The real-life scenario surrounding Kitty's and Jose's deaths was eerily similar to what Eric had written. It later came out that a few days after the murders, Eric actually confessed to a friend that he was responsible for his parents' deaths. About six months later, both brothers confessed to their therapist, who taped their sessions and played the tapes for his mistress, who he was apparently trying to impress with this gossip. His mistress was not impressed, and she brought this knowledge to the police, who seized the tapes and actually used them as evidence in the trial, which began on July 20th, 1993. Much of the focus of this trial was not on evidence collected the night of the murders, because there wasn't a lot of evidence to review. When they originally called police to report their parents dead, the Menendez brothers said they'd been at a movie and had come home to find their parents murdered. When they told their story to police, they gave the impression that the murders had taken place hours before they returned home. Since gruesome murders weren't a regular occurrence in Beverly Hills, Police weren't suspicious of foul play, at least not as much as they should have been, when they met the brothers at their home. They hadn't suspected that the victims' own sons could have been the murderers, so they didn't thoroughly search them when they arrived on the scene. Since the brothers had recently wielded shotguns to carry out their crimes, they likely had lots of gunshot residue on their hands and their clothes, and that could have been used as evidence in their trial. But their hands weren't checked when police arrived, so this potential evidence was lost. Police also didn't search the brothers' personal effects. Had they done so, they would have located the murder weapons hidden in their cars right in that driveway. With a lack of physical evidence outside of those confession tapes, and a very savvy lawyer, this trial became a sensation focused on other elements of the boys' lives leading up to the crimes. The brothers pled not guilty to charges of murder and conspiracy, and their lawyer went in a very controversial direction with her defense. She cited a long history of abuse by Jose as the boy's motive. This wasn't necessarily controversial by the nature of its place in the trial, but because people didn't believe that it was true. As Dominic Dunn writes in a very hard-to-read 1994 Vanity Fair article, quote, "'Cry for what has been done to us, not for what we have done to others,' seemed like the bottom line of their testimony and their courtroom presence. Those who believed that the boys had been abused believed that they shouldn't be punished, at least not as harshly, for their crimes. But those who didn't believe the stories fought for a strict conviction. When asked why they killed their parents, both brothers cited sexual abuse that began in childhood and was ongoing. Although Jose could be a mercilessly tough and intimidating man, not everyone believed that he was capable of sexually molesting his children well into their teenage years. One undeniable fact, though, was that when the brothers talked about the abuse, they became more emotional than at any other point in the trial. They gained many sympathizers in the telling of their story, but they also received a healthy dose of skepticism. The division among public opinion about whether or not this abuse happened kept people glued to the coverage of this case, 
Even Bill Clinton admitted that he made time in his day to watch the trial regularly. The brothers testify in the trial that they killed their father out of self-defense in direct response to the ongoing abuse. They say that on the day of Jose's death, he propositioned Eric, and they thought that Jose would kill them both because Eric refused his advances. Although they claim self-defense, evidence shows that they purchased their shotguns on August 18th, two days before the murders, which, of course, denotes premeditation. There were also holes in the story surrounding Kitty's death. If Jose was killed out of self-defense, then why was Kitty killed too? When they explained the events leading up to the murders, the brothers claimed that Kitty knew about the abuse and didn't stop it, but that's not why they killed her, and they didn't kill her out of anger or self-defense. They say that Kitty was depressed and an alcoholic, and there were also rumors at the time that Jose was having an affair with a woman in New York for eight years. According to the therapist's testimony, quote, they were putting her out of her misery. But evidence shows that her death was heart-wrenching, miserable. She was fleeing from the brothers, yet they continued to shoot at her. She was still alive and crawling away from her sons when they went outside to their cars and then returned with freshly loaded weapons that they ultimately used to kill her. Jose was already dead by this point. Lyle was responsible for the fatal shot that killed Kitty, and he cried when remembering this moment in the trial. There were seven female and five male jurors who all listened to the prosecution and defense throughout this trial, seeing images from the crime scene, hearing the lawyers' arguments, and listening to the brothers' testimonies. At the end of the six-month, widely broadcasted affair, the jury was deadlocked, and it ended in a mistrial. It was a whole year before the brothers would be tried again, and that trial lasted another six months. But this time there were no cameras allowed in the courtroom, and there was no discussion of historical evidence or sexual abuse, and the result was that both brothers were convicted of first-degree murder and were given two consecutive life sentences each. Throughout both trials, the brothers both received correspondence from all over the globe, raking in as many as a thousand letters each week. Some of these letters were from admirers, female admirers, and the brothers formed connections with their pen pals. While in prison, Eric married a woman named Tammy, with whom he had been corresponding for a number of years before they were married within the prison walls. Lyle met a woman named Anna Erickson, who he married in prison but then divorced after a year. But, as they say, there is someone out there for everyone, and there was someone new for Lyle, too, and he married a second time. In a 1996 interview with Barbara Walters, Lyle says, quote, The exchange of love and sharing, it keeps you in touch with yourself, and softer, you know. Otherwise, you can become very hard and cold in here. Hmm. Lyle and Eric are still in prison and will be for life, and as far as I know, they're both still married to their respective wives. They do express remorse for their actions, but for many people, their motives are still a mystery. Let's take a look at their astrology to see if we can get any more insight on why these two brothers took such drastic actions against their parents and how they were able to do it. Lyle Menendez was born January 10th, 1968 at 12.10pm in New York City. He is a Capricorn sun, a Taurus moon, and Taurus rising, so he's a triple earth sign. We really don't even have to look very far past his big three to find some astrological evidence that there may have been different motivations other than self-defense for this crime. One of the biggest flaws of an earth sign is materialism, and he has an abundance of earth in his chart. 
Earth signs just like things. We like to see concrete evidence that we've achieved something we've set out to do. And we can show that material evidence to others as a visible representation of our status. It would make sense to me that money, the ultimate source for accumulating material possessions, would be a very strong motivating factor in these murders for Lyle. Of course, not everybody who has a lot of Earth or is a triple Earth sign will be murdering their parents to gain their inheritance. But there's another pretty big factor in Lyle's chart that hints to me that this was money motivated. Lyle has a Taurus ascendant, so his chart ruler is Venus because Venus has dominion over Taurus. Lyle's Venus is placed in his eighth house, which governs intimate affairs, including other people's money. So the eighth house governs inheritance, and a big part of Lyle's self-image is rooted there. His identity was at least partly wrapped up in his parents' money, the money that would eventually be passed down to him. So I wonder if maybe he found out that his dad was planning on taking him out of the will, and maybe he allowed his Capricorn son, which can act ruthlessly when someone or something gets in its way, to ensure that he didn't lose what he felt was rightfully his. And with Mercury in Capricorn, Venus trying to Saturn, and a grand trine between the Sun, Moon, and Pluto, I really don't think Lyle would have acted impulsively on this. I think he was actually very methodical in his approach to carrying out this plan. Mercury in Capricorn thinks things through. Saturn trying to Venus adds a bit of self-control when it comes to achieving desires, and an easy exchange of energy between the Sun, Moon, and Pluto weaves a propensity for darkness into Lyle's inner and outer world. I think this murder was in the works for a long time, at least for Lyle, and I think Eric was just the right partner in crime. Eric Menendez was born on November 27, 1970, at 11.23 p.m. in Livingston, New Jersey. He has a Sagittarius sun, a Scorpio moon, and Virgo rising. Sagittarius is bold and excitable. Eric's friends described him as having a loud personality and a bold presence. He made sure he received attention wherever he went. Even though Sagittarius is big and out there, I think Eric Scorpio Moon played off this energy, or at least added to it, because it does have an understated need to be recognized. Even though Sagittarius tends to be confident, the energy I feel when I think of Eric causing a scene in a department store to gain an audience, for example, is not confident energy. It's riddled with insecurities that may be heightened by his Scorpio Moon, and it also feels like overcompensation due to self-doubt. It's a subconscious thought that goes something like, I feel like I'm important, but is that really true? And can it be true if no one's looking at me? It feels like a strange mix of confidence and victimhood, and it's probably partly caused by the Neptune-Sun conjunction in Eric's chart. Neptune conjunct the Sun can cause some confusion around one's self-concept, and I think this made Eric very susceptible to the influence of his brother, who he trusted, and who was ultimately able to use him as a pawn in his plan. That's not to say that Eric didn't have his own motivations for killing his parents or his own lack of regard for the rules. He did, in fact, have a very strong disregard for the rules, with Saturn retrograde opposite his Jupiter. But I have to say, I really don't think he would have done this. I don't think he would have committed this murder had Lyle not been involved and had Lyle not held most of the motivation. So, based on the evidence in these birth charts, my impression is that Lyle's main motive for killing his parents was money, plain and simple. 
I'm not saying, yes, the brothers were sexually abused or no, they weren't. Maybe the cruelty of the murder was also fueled by anger or revenge for family trauma. It certainly could have played into the circumstances of the crime and the brutality of the crime. I just don't think it was the primary reason for the brothers' violence. I do think that the synastry between Lyle's and Eric's charts is very interesting. Lyle's Venus, for example, is conjunct Eric's son. So Lyle saw Eric as someone who could be a vehicle for helping him achieve his desires. And I believe he was able to charm him, using that Venus charm, into taking actions that served him by playing on his emotions and insecurities and needs. Eric was the perfect person to bring into this plan, not just out of convenience, but because of that Saturn retrograde opposite Jupiter in his chart. His disregard for the rules and his fiery personality made him more fearless and willing to go along for a dangerous ride with a certain amount of conviction, conviction that was needed for pulling it off. In the ABC special Truth and Lies, the Menendez brothers, prosecutor Pam Bosnich says, quote, one kid killing the parents is a bad seed, two kids killing the parents is a bad family. It's highly likely that both brothers learned to place a high emphasis on material wealth and social status from their father, maybe one more than the other, and they may have picked up on some violent tendencies from him as well. But were they doomed to be brutal murderers from the start? I would argue that very few of us are but I'll let you ponder that one yourself. Thank you for joining me for the start of Season 3 of Killer Astrology. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and consider leaving a 5-star rating. You can follow the podcast on Instagram, at Killer Astrology Podcast, or follow Laura, at Laura Carey Astrology. Visit lauracarryastrology.com to book a reading and killerastrologypodcast.com for more information about the show.